blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of As we launch in again to First Timothy, that's where we're going to be, so you can turn in your Bibles there. There's a few things I just wanted to mention. First off, just want to say thank you to... Many of you, there was a whole group that were here this week and um, gave two days to decorate the church, not just decorate the church for this season, but um, make most of the stuff from scratch that you see in here. And uh, so I just want to thank all of you who are here to do that. It's awesome. It's awesome. Also, last night, um, the Christmas tree lighting for the town, that was a neat time. It didn't rain, which was special. It should have snowed, it felt like. Uh, But uh, it was a good time, and I had a number of people that came up to me and said, it's so cool, even people from from within the town leadership saying, it's so cool to see just how many people from your church is here tonight. And and I'll just say, maybe arrogantly, but it doesn't surprise me in the least bit, um, just because my experience with all of you is that you love the people in your lives well, you love this town well, and... And they give out cookies, okay. Yes, and, and they give out cookies, all of which, at least I think, are a large portion of that was provided by you. Yes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> okay. So, anyhow, so thank you for that. And, and also, I learned something last night. I, these things happen often, but I learned that um, the, the leadership of our town is needing, um, needing more people to step into leadership coming into this next year. Specifically, the, the role of mayor is coming up, and that's a, that's a vital role within the life of our town. Uh, mayor Carruthers served us really well, and uh, he has been out of that position for oh, quite a while now. And there was an interim mayor that stepped in, Vince, and he's been doing a great job, but he's not going to continue. And so there's coming a new season where we're going to need to, as a town, elect a new mayor. And um, the town is looking for qualified candidates. And that would be something that I think each of us should be thoughtful about and prayerful of. Um, There may be someone in this room that would be a good fit for that. Um, Or maybe you know someone within this room or someone within this town. They have to live within the city limits. Um, But it would be a way in which you'd be able to serve this community well or someone that you know would serve them well. So that's that's a position that's going to be coming available and open. I think it's the vote is in March. And so, so it's the sign up is in March. So um, anyway, um, many of you have served on the town council in the past. That's also another way to, to serve and to love our town. So, so uh, I'll just wanted to get that to you. And Theo agrees. So um, let's pray and then we will open up uh, to first Timothy. Father, we just we thank you for um, the opportunity that you have given us to to be here and to reach those in our lives with your gospel, and uh, we thank you for the opportunity that we, we have um, through this season, this Christmas season, to, to love one another. And we know that this is a difficult season for many people, and so you would we'd ask that you would just make our our hearts sensitive to those around us, those that are struggling this time of year. We especially, we think of our sister Julia, who lost her son this last week, and she's down visiting family now. We just pray for your presence and your comfort, and, and uh, I, I, I thank you for his professed faith in you as just recently as just a short time ago. Um, but Lord, we, we now commit our time to you as we come under the authority of your word, and we submit ourselves to it, and we pray this in Jesus' name. 
precious name. Amen. So, healthy church. What is, what is a healthy church? That is the question that this book of 1 Timothy addresses. What is a healthy church? And a lot of times when people are looking to attend a church, they'll ask themselves like, what do I want in a church? I want the, the music to be like this. I want, these, I want it to be traditional, or I want it to be contemporary, or I want hymns, or I want Gaither music. I mean, whatever. There's all these different varieties. This is what I want. Or they'll think about preaching. They want this particular style of preaching or that particular style of preaching. They want possibly certain programs for their family, kids, youth, those kinds of things. They may want specific feel from the people in the congregation, hopefully a loving feel. That's kind of an important one within the life of a church. Uh, So there's all these kinds of different categories that people can think about of things that they might want in a church. And those aren't bad. I wouldn't say that those are wrong questions or bad questions to ask. However, I don't think it's the most important question. When we think about a church and, and what is found within a church, it's not so much what I want in a church, but what does God want his church to be? What is, what is God's definition of a, a family, a congregation of his children? What does he want it to be? And that is the question that was, was, was coming up to this young man, the protege of St. Paul, his name is Timothy, he was dealing from, with inside the walls of the church, some great difficulties, primarily false doctrine, um, primarily disunity. It was messy, and he was struggling to, to lead his people there and the people that God put in his charge. And so Paul, who had planted this church, it's the church in Ephesus, he planted this church and left Timothy there to care for the church. And He writes this letter to Timothy with the intent of not just Timothy reading it, but it being read to the whole church there in Ephesus. He writes this to kind of set things straight and to define what it is that God wants in his people and in his church. And so that's the picture. And so when we started off our time in in Timothy in the first five verses, we looked at um, the goal, the main thing that Paul said, if you are going to address the church and lead the church and expose false doctrine in the church and expose the the sin of disunity and disharmony, arrogance and pride. If you're going to lead the, the, the charge, then your goal is very clear. You got to have love that comes from a pure heart. You have to have love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. He raises the bar. He says, any conversation you have, any message that you teach or preach, any way that which you lead, your root motivation has got to be love for these people. That's your motivation. If you do it out of anger or out of spite, it's, it's a mute point. There's no, there's no point there. And then moving on, last week, Dr. Bob took us through verses 6 through 11, talking about a, a, a healthy church. He pointed out that a healthy church is one that properly handles the word of God. That is a healthy church. Healthy church is one that properly handles the Word of God. And specifically, he talked about how properly handling the Word of God helps to expose false thinking and false doctrine. That is, almost the majority of the letters in which we read in the New Testament, the non-gospel letters, mostly are the writers dealing with issues and God dealing through the writers with issues that arise in, in a church due to false doctrine, false teaching, false preaching, and those alike. And so we looked at that. Now this week, as we launch in to this 
section, we're going to be in verses 12 through 17, and then to kind of illustrate the big idea of the text, I want to just share an experience that I, I actually have this with my kids regularly, but it happened earlier this week too, uh, where we were playing a game together. It's a common thing. We're gathered together playing a game, and as we got going, it wasn't too far into the game, and my, my kids were winning the game, and they, they thought it would be, well, I don't know why they thought it would be fun to do this, but they started to goad their dad and gloat and brag a little bit that they're whooping their dad at this game. I was glad to remind them of a, a saying that has been very regular pretty much every time we play a game, and it's a saying not original me, you probably know it. The saying is, it's not how it starts, kiddos, it's how it finishes. It's not how you're doing now, it's how you, you end the game. And so if we fast forward to the end of that game, huh, I still lost. <laughs> but, uh, but my point was clear. <laughs> uh, now, when we look at this text specifically, what we see Paul saying, especially as he starts, starts verses 12 through 14, and then even through verse 17, he, in essence, is, is drawing out, it's not how you start that matters. That's not as important as how you finish. It's not how you start, but it's, it's how you finish. And so it's, it's worthy, I think, for us to look at the life of Paul, to specifically let's just break down how he goes about exercising his faith so that he finishes well, so that he, he finishes strong. And so that leads us to, to the beginning here, to kind of the first, the first point, if you have your notes. First off, Paul remembers who he was before grace. He remembers well who he was before Christ came into his life. He says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service. Formerly though, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that is within Christ Jesus. Now, as we look at this in verses 12 through 14, we get this picture of an outpouring of gratitude that comes from Paul. And it relates specifically to his personal history, his personal history and his personal walk with Christ. But before Paul was Paul, this is Christianity 101 here, but I want to goose some basics. Before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. He was a persecutor. He was a hater of the Christian church. This picture is of him observing the stoning of Stephen that we read about in Acts. He was a brutal, unrelenting, bloody guy. And in Acts, we read Luke, he writes Acts, and he says basically that Paul is nothing short of a religious predator. He preyed on those that were a part of what it reads in Acts as the way. He preyed upon those that were part of the Christian church, and his goal was simple and clear. He wanted complete extermination of the way. He wanted complete extermination of the church of that day. He was callous. He was self-righteous, bigoted. He was really hell-bent on destruction of the church. Now, with Paul... With his story, what ends up happening is he gets approval from the religious leaders to go to this place called Damascus to, to fulfill this mission of wiping out the church. But on his way, something very important happens. And what happens here, we read about in Acts. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And then he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise now, go enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do there. With Paul, he never forgot who he was before that moment in time. He did not let go of that. It really became for him a a fuel, a fuel for his fidelity, his love, and his worship of Christ. That's what his past reminded him of, his past before Christ. And, And the question that it begs to ask us, each one of us, is do you remember Do you remember what your life was like prior to Christ coming in? Now, some of us could say, well, that was a while ago. That was a few years ago. Uh, For myself, I can say too, you know, I was a young, young kid who accepted Christ at a very early age. And for me, the change was incremental over time. And there's still a lot of work still to be done But do you remember what life was like before Christ? When we sit here and stand here as a church and together sing songs, many of those songs really are an outflow of gratitude for the grace that has already happened within us. And it is important for us to be fueled by that and to never forget that, just like Paul. He he never forgot where he he came from. I I just want to challenge you this week as you're going about your week. I know it's busy with the, the season and all. But to take some time to think. If you're in a growth group, this is part of your homework. But if you're not, still take some time to think, to think through. What was life like before Christ came in? Maybe some of you can say, you know, it was like a lightning bolt, like what happened with Paul. It was a very radical transformation. But others of you, maybe it was more incremental. Can you identify those different times and places in your life when, when Christ entered in? Maybe it was through a conversation or a song or a sermon or a, a worship setting or, or who knows. There's all kinds of different ways in which God works in our, in our lives. And maybe when we're going through that same process, we might realize, yeah, Christ had done a work in me in this particular area, but, you know, time has gone along and I, I kind of have taken that area back in my life and maybe it's a good time to, to give, it back over to, give it back over to him. But Paul was good at this. Paul remembers who he was before grace. And secondly, what we see in, in the, the next verse, kind of a central verse to this entire well, I could say this book, but I could also say the entire New Testament. It's, he focused on what was most important. Now, we obviously know that's the gospel, but he focused on what was most important. Now, in this life, we all, all of us in here, have things in our heads right now that are not worth knowing. We have stuff that's there that we don't need. And if you're thinking, I don't know what those are, I've got a few. Here are a few. Useless information for you. Um, Okay, WD-40. Anybody know what WD stands for in WD-40? Oh, wow, I didn't know that. It's a water displacer. Okay, more useless information. Um, All right, I bet you don't know this one. Uh, You don't know this one. Okay, this is some ladies playing bridge. There are 635,000,000,559,559 possible hands in the game of bridge. And now you know. <laughs> I don't know what all the chatter is. <laughs> um, okay, so this is one. It takes six months to build a Rolls Royce. It takes 13 hours to build a Toyota Camry. <laughs> useless information. Here, here's some more useless information. It takes two weeks to build a Ford pickup, and it takes 45 minutes to build a Chevy or a Dodge pickup truck. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> 
Useless information. Uh, shoe rubber wears out faster on your right foot than it does your left foot, even if you're left-footed. Did you know that? Well, Goodyear did a three-year-long study and found that out. <laughs> a moth. A moth has no stomach. Think on that one for a while. And uh, in an average year, the average person walks four miles while making their bed. If you were to ask my wife, I'm pretty sure I'd bring that scale down a little bit. <laughs> so we all know things that are worth, not worth knowing. I just gave you some. I, I think I'm going to have to confess. This isn't part of the sermon, I promise that. Um, so we know things that are not worth knowing, um, and, and really none of us knows, none of us knows everything. But, but there is one thing that every person, especially in this room, and, and especially every follower of Christ, every follower of Christ must know and must continually remember. And this is what Paul was so good at remembering. And it's this, it's verse 15, it's simple. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus, when he came into the world, he came in the world to save sinners. And I just want to break this down for a moment. This is so central to the whole of the New Testament story. It may seem like it's Christianity 101, but we always need the basics in our lives. He says there's really several reasons. He breaks this down. One of those reasons is that it's a, it's a trustworthy saying. This is a trustworthy saying, which means, notice, he did not say that this is a, or was a trustworthy saying. He says it is. It wasn't a trustworthy saying back in their day. It is an ongoing trustworthy saying, even for us today. It's also a saying that's deserving of full acceptance, meaning that it's valuable. It's valuable at all place and all time. Every statement that comes from God is always reliable. It's always valuable. It's worthy of full acceptance. Now, this is a statement for everyone at all times, not just back in Bible times, not just today, but also for the future in every one of our circumstances. Now, all of the Bible really comes down to one simple singular truth, and it's this truth, Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So I want to break this down. It's interesting. This morning, uh, Dr. Bob is in Kentucky doing dissertation overviews and things like that. And so he had Pastor Rob fill in for him in, in his expositor's Bible class this morning. And it was awesome to sit there and to, to, to hear how, what he dealt with this morning in his, in his talk with what we're talking about here. We didn't put our notes together or anything, and, and, um, and yet they, they fit so close together. But the first thing we want to look at is just, first off, just talk about the proof that Jesus came. This is just something simple. It's something we celebrate with Advent, but the proof that Jesus came. Christ came, and there's just three, the way that we've worded him here, there are three H's, and the first one is historical. There's the historical proof of Christ. Now, we have, obviously, the New Testament, 27 books of the New Testament, but if we were just to take the New Testament and look at it not from a Christian's perspective, but from a, from a secular perspective, from a historian's perspective, these books are and do have incredible historical value. It's one of them, this historical um, treasure troves, both Old and New Testament, that, that historians have. But even if we didn't have the books of the New Testament, we could know that by the name of Jesus himself, this guy lived 2,000 years ago because the, the historians, back to Jesus' day, these are non-Christians, in some cases anti-Christians, um, were, were historians, and they 
point to the person of Christ. There's Cornelius Tacticus. He was a Roman historian who was born roughly the time of Christ's death. And he spoke of Jesus who was put to death by Pontius Pilate in Judea, or of Judea. And then there's Josephus, who one of our goats is named after. Josephus was a Jewish historian who was born about the time that Christ died as well. And he speaks about this man, Jesus, who, called a, who was called a wise man, a doer of wonderful works, <clears throat> was the Christ whom Pilate condemned to the cross. Now, time will, will not permit us to go over every historian that, that deals with it, but one interesting fact is that there is more documentation. There's more documentation from a secular point of view for the existence of Jesus Christ than there is for the existence of Julius Caesar. Interesting. You won't read about that or hear that on media outlets. Um, so the fact is that from his name to his fame, there's no there is no reputable historian that would ever deny the historicity of the person of Jesus. They just wouldn't do it. They may deny his, his identity as the Son of God, but they certainly cannot deny his reality as a, as a living, breathing person. Then there's the, um, the heavenly proof. I'm not going to spend much time on this. If you want more, more on this, you should come to Doc, or Pastor Bob's class next week at 9 a.m. as he goes through the second part of his, his teaching on these proofs. But Another reason that we have, um, have this heavenly proof is because the Bible simply tells us there is over 350 Old Testament prophecies that Christ has fulfilled. And the, 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 um, the fact that that is the case is an astronomical odds that, that one man could fulfill 350 prophecies from thousands and some, sometimes thousands of years earlier. Um, so there's the heavenly proof. And then, and then there's the, the human proof. This is one that... This is one that uh, if, you, if you read any of Josh McDowell's books, Evidence the Man's the Verdict, he says is the most powerful um, tool or proof that a person could use to, to point to not just the, the reality of his personhood, but also the reality of what he claimed to be was the, the human proof. Every day simply, and every day when we write down a date, it's a subtle reminder of who Jesus is. Our entire dating system simply revolves around him. We live in, obviously, 2018 A.D., and those two letters, A.D., come from the Latin word anno domini, which literally means in the year of our Lord, in the year of our Lord, and then B.C. means before Christ. Now, before, you might be surprised how many of the ordinary things that we take for granted in life came from Christ himself. So just give you a few examples here. Next time that you drink Welch's grape juice, those of you who are my age maybe remember this cute little girl that did Welch's grape juice commercials. But when you think about this, this was this um, this juice was named by or named after a man named Welch, last name Welch, and he was looking for a way to develop a non-alcoholic drink for people to be able to celebrate communion. So he made what became known as Welch's grape juice, and that juice, for the first 20 years of the company's existence, only and sole customers were churches. They weren't sold anywhere else. Welch's grape juice. Next one, which cues you into why you have a pretzel on the front of your bulletin, if you were wondering that. Um, we, many of us eat pretzels, and I don't know if you've occurred where this pretzel came from, but it actually was developed by a godly Italian monk back in A.D. 610. Virtually, he was teaching a Sunday school class. Uh, 
and he wanted to find a way to reward his students for saying their prayers. And so he came up with a snack shaped in a way that reflects the crossed arms of the way he taught his students to pray. And he called this snack Pretolia. It even sounds Italian, right? Pretolia. Um, which means simply little rewards. That's what pretzel means, little rewards, and that's where we, we get that. Uh, also, this is an interesting one, restaurant. Did you know that the original word for restaurant goes back to a Bible verse, a Bible verse that we don't have up here at the moment because of, of our Christmas banner, but it's the verse, Matthew eleven twenty eight, where it says, Come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy, heavy laden, and I will give you rest, that word rest. So prior to, ni- or prior to 1766, you couldn't go to what we do commonly, a restaurant, to get food. The only places that you could get food outside of your own home were as if you went to an inn or a hotel. They would sell food as part of you staying there. But there was this entrepreneur and chef, a guy named Bollinger, who opened up this establishment to the public that is dedicated solely for the purpose of eating and so he placed on bold letters outside of his very first restaurant the phrase, Come unto me, all of you who are he- weary and heavy laden, and I will restore you. And so that word in French, restore, means restaurai. And from that point forward, from 1766, from that point forward, all the eateries around the world to, got the name restaurant. So you get this word restaurant, and it really comes from the words of Christ spoken in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Interesting. Christ, his impressions are all over the place. So think about it. Whenever you go to a, a restaurant, eat a pretzel, drink grape juice, write a date in your checkbook or on a calendar, all of these things are indicators to the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So, so we see here the, the, some of the proof. This is just some. Uh, the historical, heavenly, human proof for Christ, but did you realize also that um, there was there was something else, and that something else is this: that he, that Christ came. There was a problem that he came to solve, and that's what this verse tells us about. There's a problem that he came to solve. Paul goes on to tell us that Christ Jesus came into the world. I'll just put these both up there. He came into the world to save sinners. That's why he came. He came into the world specifically for the purpose of saving. That tells us two things. First off, that we are all sinners, and secondly, that we all need to be saved. If you were not a sinner, you would not need to be saved, and if you didn't need to be saved, Jesus would not have, have come in the first place. Let's just kind of focus on this for just a moment. Think about this for a moment. Um, the reason Christ came was to save. If our, if our primary problem in life, if our primary problem was knowledge, then God would have simply sent a teacher. If our main problem had been technology, he could have sent a scientist if our big problem had been money, he could have sent us a philanthropist. If our central problem had been peace, he could have sent a diplomat or a politician. If our leading problem had been health, he could have sent a, a doctor. But our supreme problem was sin, so God sent to us a Savior, a Savior who we celebrate his coming this morning. He came to save, and he is all that we need to be saved. There's a lot of people that say that church saves there are a number of people that believe baptism saves. There's billions of people that believe religion saves. There might even be people in this room, and certainly there's people in our town, that believe that clean living or good living saves. But we, as 
God's children, as followers of Jesus, need to be able to, like Jeremy Camp's song says, we need to be able to shout from the rooftops that Jesus is the only one in which that saves. He's the one that came, and he came to save sinners, which leads to the next point. Christ came, he came to save sinners. We're told that he came to save sinners. The only kind of people that Jesus will bother to save are those who are sinners. And the only kind of people that he can be saving are those that need to be saved. He said it himself. He says, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. And this is the great news for us. It's the great news for us and our mission as a church. And it's the great news for you if you're here today and you've never accepted Christ into your life. You are qualified as a sinner for salvation. The only people that are eligible to go to heaven are sinners. Those are the only people eligible to go to heaven. The only people that Jesus came to save, sinners. The only people that can be forgiven their sins are sinners. Those are the only people that can receive eternal life. One of my commentators said this. He said, um, all churches should have this sign hanging on the front of their door for sinners only. No one else need apply. And what's, what's interesting here, and I love this, has it ever occurred to you that if you try to come to the Savior as a saint, if you try to come to the Savior as a saint, you'll be rejected as a sinner. But if you come to the Savior as a sinner, you'll be received as a saint. How, how awesome is that? How awesome is that? I love that. There's, there's two types of people that you will never meet. There's two types of people. There's, doesn't matter how long you live. Young or old, you'll never meet either one of these. You'll never meet someone who was so good that they didn't need to be saved. You might meet people that think that, but you won't ever meet a person that's so good that they need not be saved. And you'll never meet someone so bad, so evil, that they cannot be saved. There's a lot of people, a lot of people that think that in this life they've got to get themselves all fixed up and all cleaned up so that they can be presentable to God. But that's the opposite. You don't clean up your life so that you can get saved. You get saved so that you allow God to do the work of cleaning up in your life. There is a, a beautiful story, true story. Uh, a, a sweet young lady at the time, um, she was playing a piano at a gathering of wealthy noble people. And, and this is in, in Britain, I believe. And she's in this big, lovely home, and she plays this song with this very angelic voice. And after she's done, all of the partygoers come up and just swoon over her. And they, they tell her how talented she is, how lovely and beautiful she was. Um, but a kind-hearted Christian man goes up to the same woman right after that. And he says, young lady, I, I really, I don't mean to offend you, but I want to tell you, that in the middle of all of this praise and all of these accolades that you are receiving tonight, unless you are saved and born again, you're as lost as the most wicked harlot in all of London. Not a very PC thing to say. What that man said, it really went like a dart into the heart of this young lady. She went home that night. She wasn't able to sleep. She got up at 3 a.m., fell to her knees and gave her life to Jesus. Now, who is this lady? This lady, her name is Charlotte Elliott. You might not know her, but those of you who have been around church and are familiar with some hymns know 
one of the most famous hymns that she wrote, and she wrote it that night from her knees on that floor after accepting Christ. She wrote the song, Just As I Am, that beautiful old hymn, Just As I Am Without One Plea, but that, thy, that, but that Thy Blood Was Shed For Me, and that Thou Bidst Me Come To Thee, Lamb of God, I Come. Lamb of God, I Come. That's a song that I believe is used at every one of Billy Graham's crusades as he presents the gospel and offers people to respond to Christ as a sinner, is that song. I'm hoping all of us know that if you're to be saved, you have to come to Christ as a sinner. You don't have to come to Christ with a perfect, cleaned-up life. As we, as we close out today, I've got one more point that I'm going to cover, but I want to say this now, and I'll remind you. Uh, this is a great time. This is a great time now. If you've never given your life to Christ, I'm going to be at the, during the last song, and after the service, I'll be in the back. And uh, I would love to, I'd love to be with you and pray with you to receive Christ. So, the third thing, the third principle that Paul shows us here on what it looks like to, to not just start well, but to finish well, is number three, he makes sure, in all things, he makes sure that God gets the glory. He makes sure that God gets the glory. Verses 16 and 17, but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In our world of self-glory and social mediaizing and all of those things, it's so easy to, to, to steal glory away from others and from the Lord. In the realm of sinners, Paul saw himself as the foremost of the male, the worst of all sinners. That's what Paul saw himself as. And I think in our politically correct world today, for Paul to say he was the worst of all sinners, many people would be quick to try to correct him. They'd be quick to try to tell him, oh, you're not that bad. They'd want to restore his self-esteem. But that was a healthy self-assessment for Paul. First off, it, it was good. It fueled his worship. It reminded him of who he was before Christ. But it was an accurate view of who he was before Christ. And it is this reason, that's what verse 16 tells us, it's this reason why, why he was able to find mercy and grace. God did not save him. He didn't save him merely to get him out of hell, to save him to get him out of heaven. He didn't even save him necessarily to write a large portion of the New Testament. God could have used anybody to do this. God saved him for the purpose, and his purpose of salvation was so that both in Paul's case and in ours, it displays the, the power of God and the grace of God and the glory of God. When God saves a sinner and a life is changed, he is glorified through that. Primarily, when someone's saved, it's for God's glory first, and then secondarily, it's for our benefit. It's a good benefit. It's a good secondary benefit, what we get. But ultimately, with life changed, with life changed, it's a beautiful thing. Paul was living proof. He was living proof that God can save a sinner and any sinner. He was that model of a sinner for, for all of us. And uh, for those of us here, those of us here in this room, God would save them um, <clears throat> There's no doubt that God would save us because of our past. 
There's some that think that their past is too, too bad. There's people who would do well just simply to remember Paul because I'm pretty sure you're not out there spewing murderous threats towards Christians. And if you are, that's okay too because you're worthy of salvation. But also for many of us, we have, and it's important to remember, family members. We have friends. It's, it's disheartening oftentimes to, to talk with some of us in here who, who think about family members, think about friends as if they are outside. Maybe you wouldn't say this with words, but your nonverbal communication communicates that they're outside of the grace of God. They, they, would, never, they would never yield their life to Jesus. Well, I'm telling you, if Paul would, if Paul would, then there's no doubt that anyone could and would do the very same thing, discover that grace. So it'd be good to remember that. So as we go into this Christmas season, it's good to remember where we were before Christ and, and who we are now because of that. And, you know, we're sitting at the, the town Christmas tree lighting last night, and I was talking with, with one of our dear people here, and and I just was, we were just talking about how overwhelming it is to be amongst all of these, these people. All of these people, a lot of which were, were you, but many of which we've never seen before, but have families and have kids and have lives and who need Christ, who need Christ in their life, who need to know that all of the things that they, they, they cover up with the facade of our culture and the distraction of our world um, can be remedied by one thing, and it can be remedied by a Savior who loves them and who died for them. And it's a great privilege that we have and honor that we have to be a beacon of truth, a beacon of the gospel here in this, this town. I'd invite the worship team to come up, and I want to remind you I'll be in the back. I'd love to pray with you. And uh, yeah, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for who we were um, before we came to know you. We thank you that you've proven yourself reliable and true and that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. The way that you've defined the love perfectly and, and, and purely and modeled it for us. And I thank you for saving Paul, the, the, the most vile of sinners, and leaving him as an example uh, for us so that none of us were without excuse uh, thinking that we are not worthy of your love because of our past. Uh, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your love, and I thank you for every person in here. Lord, I pray for special grace over this holiday season that you would help us to walk in the power of your Holy Spirit and just to be people who love, love well one another, not just in this room, but also outside these walls. And this we pray in the powerful and beautiful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.